You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Dr. Andrew Hammond, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, SpyCast brings you conversations with practitioners, authors and scholars who live in the world of global espionage. If you have any questions, comments or concerns, please reach out to us at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. If you like what you hear, and even if you don't, please take a minute to review us on iTunes or whatever platform you listen on. We're always looking for ways to make SpyCast better, and you can help. Okay, well, thanks for joining me uh, for this special episode of SpyCast on the events that transpired here in Washington yesterday. Um, So I'm thrilled to be joined uh, by Diana Balsinger, um, who I believe is new to SpyCast, is that right? Yes, sir. Okay, well, well, welcome. Um, And I figure that many of you will know from his former uh, iteration as the historian at Spy, or as a guest on SpyCast, Mark Stout. But for for those listeners that don't know both of you, could you just give a brief uh, synopsis of your careers and your expertise? Gladly. I ended on duty with the CIA in 1985. I started in the Afghan task force back when uh, it was the good fight against the Soviet occupiers. And then a few months later, I actually did a training rotation to this brand new experiment that was called the Counterterrorism Center with only two, three dozen people. And would this work? Was this even a mission? And what I never expected is those two jobs, Afghanistan and then CTC, ended up setting the pattern for the rest of my adult life, frankly. between academia now as a professor and spending the 90s and onward working counterterrorism, I retired out of NCTC in 2014, uh, working on terrorist watch list. One other thing that's just worth mentioning for the context of our discussion is before I came on board with the IC, I did intern on Capitol Hill, and I had throughout my IC career, I did have fairly routine interactions with both the House and the Senate. And um, I spent uh, I spent a bit over 20 years in the national security community, I guess 21, uh, of which 13 was in the intelligence community. Um, first at the Bureau of Intelligence and Research at the State Department. Uh, and then uh, at the CIA. Um, I left the IC in 2003, did some other national security stuff. Um, my time in the IC, I worked primarily on Russia, uh, particularly Russian military and Paul Mill and some other strange Russian-related things. And uh, in my second career, uh, I'm, a, I'm an historian, and 
I had your job, uh, Andrew, for three years uh, at one point, uh, back a while. And I'm now the director of uh, Masters of Arts program in Global Security Studies for Johns Hopkins here in Washington, D.C. So the purpose of today is just to, to try to analyze what transpired yesterday. I just want to benefit from both of your expertise and your time in the IC and your current positions to, to try to provide SpyCast listeners with some context. So before we go into the intelligence part, I just wondered if, if as American citizens, you could tell us where you were yesterday and, and what, was, what was going through your mind. Well, um, I, because I'm a bit of a geek, I, I tuned in to uh, just watch the counting of the electoral votes. Uh, I was aware there were going to be demonstrations. I didn't expect those two things to intersect. And I was, you know, sitting, puttering, working on email, watching the sort of watching the television out of the corner of my eye when there was a kerfuffle and looked up and was told that the Secret Service had just hustled Mike Pence out of the chamber. And then I started paying a whole lot more attention. And I was actually up until 4 a.m. last night watching until the very bitter end of this whole thing. Um, but I got to say, the thing that I kept thinking about was uh, two um, incidents real early on in my time in the intelligence community. Uh, first, the coup in Moscow in 1991 that was sort of the blow that finally shattered the Soviet Union. And then in 1993, when there was a confrontation again in Moscow between Russian President Boris Yeltsin and the Russian parliament over who was going to basically be, be top dog in, in, in Moscow, which ended up with, uh, you know, combat in the streets of Moscow and, and storming by the Russian military of the parliament building um, and, you know, working uh, shift work fo following that and and looking at all the reports coming in from 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 Moscow and and I, I kept having this feeling all through yesterday that like you know somewhere at the headquarters of the SVR and the GRU there's somebody doing the job that I was doing in 1991 and 1993 and tracking you know where are the police in DC and where's the National Guard and you know what do we know about the location of the vice president all that sort of stuff that that I did looking at them you know what was it 25 30 years ago Ironically, I was trying un unsuccessfully to uh, focus on lesson planning for a couple graduate seminars starting in a couple weeks, one of which is a class on terrorism that I'm working to fit in the Boogaloo Boys, etc. And the second, even more pertinent, is called intelligence and information and is looking at how people choose what political news to believe or not believe. And the re election results are definitely part of the syllabus and lesson plan to copy uh, Mark's mental connections for me, where my mind went back to is, remember, I came on to the agency after having worked on Capitol Hill. And I remember a couple months into my work, the Pakistan, uh, Pakistani, no, sorry, the Afghan legislature on the floor of their legislature had a major pitched battle with parliamentarians and guards and police and people on the streets, not just throwing punches, but cheers at each other, et cetera. And in my infinite naivete, I'm looking at that going, that's the difference between the good old US of A and a country that really doesn't have its act together. And I flashed back to that moment yesterday and frankly, I was deeply humbled and frightened. So the former CIA director, John McLaughlin, on Twitter, he said it was the most shameful day in modern U.S. history. Would, would you agree with him? Well, uh, it's certainly got to be on the short list. Um, you know, the United States, for all of its great merits, has, has, has many flaws. And there's, uh, but in terms of, and, you know, many uh, unfortunately, shameful things in its past. But in terms of shameful things that were, you know, enacted live on television in real time and live on, you know, uh, social media in real time and, and had in the instant, um, you know, enormous 
impact on pretty much everybody who is conscious in the country. Um, I think it's got to be in the top, you know, probably one or two, I would think. Yeah, absolutely. It was um, it was a day that I doubt any of us will forget. I call it number three. Dred Scott decision and firing on Fort Sumter would be higher on my list, but I agree with Mark. It's up there. I mean, putting it in the... Even even in the same ballpark as Dred Scott and the firing Fort Sumter underlines the gravity of what happened yesterday, huh? Yes, sir. I would say it is by far the most shameful event I have seen in my lifetime. Yeah. So let, let, let's pivot onto the intelligence implications of yesterday. So the first the first thing I was thinking of exploring was was this an intelligence failure? I know that that's something you were particularly interested in, Mark. Yeah, so um, it's, a, it's a, a super important question. And I think we're gonna learn and we should learn a lot more about this in the coming days and weeks and perhaps even longer. It is clear that in one sense, there was surprise, right? So the Capitol Police were obviously not prepared and, and in retrospect, which they had been uh, for what happened. So there was surprise. Surprise doesn't necessarily mean per se that there was an intelligence failure. Um, I think it's a very good chance there was, um, but there's a communication aspect to this. So there's a question of whether, you know, the FBI and the Secret Service and Homeland Security Intel were, you know, uh, had some sense of what was going to come, what was going to happen. But, you know, um, uh, uh, but whether or not, let's assume they did, did their customers, did... uh, you know, the Capitol Police and all that take those warnings seriously. We don't we don't know. So, um, and, you know, there's sort of an old joke, not actually so funny in the intelligence community, that there are policy successes and intelligence failures. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, I, I'm sure it's, it's very easy to label this an intelligence failure, and it may turn out to be. There was clearly a failure somewhere. Um, and I think actually that this is something that, you know, needs to be looked into. We need to we need to figure out because this was eminently foreseeable and this could have been prepared for. Um, we need to figure out sort of where, you know, where that ball got dropped or, you know, multiple places potentially that ball got dropped. And that's one of the quick thought is, you know, um, in failures, whether they're intelligence failures or other failures, often, you know, the failures are, are often quite diffuse. Um, really, it's a rare event that it's like one person like you screwed up. Um, so I would also encourage people on whichever side of the Intel policy or Intel police divide this, you know, failure turns out to have been, if you're looking for one person to nail to the wall, that's probably the wrong answer. If what you want to do is see long-term improvement. Just quickly, Mark, um, sometimes I get emails from people saying, um, make the guess break, uh, concepts down for for people that have not been or in the in the community so just briefly can you can you tell us what an intelligence failure is and maybe give us another example (laughs) well that could that could be a two-hour discussion right there um (laughs) so what we're talking about here is a warning failure uh purportedly possibly right uh and the idea is that some sort of um bad event is being planned by you know uh malefactors um, and it's the job of the intelligence community to realize that they are intending to do X, hopefully on Y date, um, and then to convey that information to policymakers or security people or whatever, whoever who can take, you know, counteraction or, or thwart it from happening. Um, uh, so, uh, yeah, so that's, that's the basic idea, uh, here with, with, uh, with warning failure. There can be other kinds of intelligence failure, uh, you know, the belief that there are weapons of mass destruction in Iraq is also an intelligence failure. Different sort of dynamics would 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 uh, would uh, would go into this. And and um, yeah, so just briefly, that's the idea. It is definitely focusing in on the fact that whatever failure took place yesterday began years before this. We have seen reports for years now of right-wing militias, the Q conspirators, 
three percenters, Oath Keepers, uh, Proud Boys, etc. Boogaloo Boys organizing. We have seen some indications that some individuals within the Department of Homeland Security have focused in on this threat. We've seen other indicators that they've been discouraged to, from going too deeply. We're in early days now, but some of the media reports that are coming out overnight suggest that the Capitol mob was actually not a surprise to many people, that it was pl planned ahead of time, that there were individuals who talked on Parler, who talked on Gab, who talked on other social media that quite frankly is available and accessible to open source analysts. Why was this not listened to, paid attention to and used? We're not at the point, as Mark uh, rightly pointed out, we're not at the point right now that we even have the information to say was the breakdown among the analysts, the breakdowns among the people who were collecting, the breakdown or forbidden to collect, or among the law enforcement and other actors who got may have gotten the information and failed it. But yesterday could have been ameliorated if not prevented. Yeah, I think Diana's onto a really uh, important point here is that if this was a failure on the collection or analysis side, I would argue um, it's a particularly egregious one because unlike classic warning problems um, where there have sometimes been failures, right? So uh, Pearl Harbor, uh, you know, the Arab attacks on, on Israel in 1973, 9-11, uh, right? Those were all um, attackers who were trying to keep secret what they were gonna do. That is really very different uh, from what we saw here, where there may have been like small aspects of this or small subgroups who, you know, themselves were secret, but broadly speaking, this wasn't ever intended to be secret, right? These people were openly recruiting, you know, I asked Diana notes on social media that's available to all of us and like, you know, wanted more people to come. They were actively sharing the invitation, unlike the Japanese and 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 and, and Al Qaeda and, and and that. So so if this was a, a a warning failure on the intel side, I think it's a particularly bad one. But we don't know that that's where this failure, you know, was. I think that's an important and interesting point, right? Because a lot of this was telegraphed in the public sphere. I, I guess pivoting uh, onto the hidden hand, do you detect in any way the work of other intelligence agencies? I will say the sad thing is there didn't need to be. We don't know enough. I certainly don't know enough to say yes or no. It's possible. What I find saddest and most concerning of this, whatever role Russia, China, Iran, whomever has played in the past few years, accelerating our internal splits. They're ours, we own it. And we had the president of the United States and his top advisors and others standing there on camera in public telling people to uh, the mob to go let Congress know what they think. So yeah, that's, I completely necessary agree. and sufficient. Mm -hmm. I completely agree. Yeah, I, you know, there may have been foreign intelligence services encouraging this, but this would have happened in substantially the same way, even even without them. Uh, you know, it's it's very hard um, in the covert action world to create a cleavage in your target what you do is you exploit real cleavages that are already there. But yeah, I think Diane is absolutely right. We did this to ourselves. There may have been nudges along the way by other outside actors, but if so, they were no more than nudges in my so, view. Is, so, so basically, there, 
if they were involved, they were pushing on an open door. And that's uh, another good metaphor. Yeah. Yes, sir. Better, better metaphor than one. <laughs> I used, yeah. the, the, this is this is all, <laughs> this is also maybe a topic for another time. But uh, I was reading a book recently about the introduction of the Stinger missiles into the Soviet Afghan war, um, based on based on research and the Russian archives, and they were saying that. The decision to withdraw was taken before the stingers were introduced to the battlefield. So it's a similar kind of thing. They, they were pushing on an open door. But, I mean, for, for me, like, you know, I, I can see the U.S. Capitol building from my roof. It's, it's literally less than a mile from where I am. So it was very surreal to be here yesterday. But one, one thing that's interesting about Washington is that it's a, a global epicenter of espionage um, I've seen some estimates that there there are more than 10,000 spies in or around the nation's capital don't ask me about how the methodology for how they came up with that but, but that's what I've heard so the, the question I have for both of you is would some of those intelligence operatives have infiltrated the US capital yesterday? Um so the short answer is we don't know if they did, but it's certainly possible. Um, uh, if you were a betting man? I'd bet slightly against it, but in some sense, that's almost not the point. The point is um, that these spaces, um, sensitive spaces, even if even if no skiffs, even if no facilities in the capital that are designated for the, you know, for, for the processing of classified information, the classified discussions, even if none of those skiffs were, were violated, there, the, there were sensitive spaces like the Speaker of the House's office, right, uh, that had people in them, the, the, the office of the chairman of the Armed Services Committee, you know, et cetera, et cetera, that had people in them that we cannot rule out the possibility that there were, you know, foreign actors in there who were, you know, planting, uh, planting bugs uh, in the wall or, you know, putting malware on the computers, some of which you probably saw the photographs were left unsecured. You know, even if, so even though I think it's unlikely, I wouldn't be like stunned, but I think it's unlikely. It's not out of the question. And the counterintelligence and security people would have to operate on the assumption that it might have happened and sweep everything within an inch of its life and probably replace a lot of hardware that was left there, you know, unsecured. Um, you know, but it's definitely possible. And I think back to the, oh, and heck, I don't remember if it was the late 70s or if it was in the 80s, but there was a there was a fire in the U.S. Embassy in Moscow, or a somewhat suspicious mm -hmm. fire. Mm -hmm. And it was afterwards established that among the firefighters who came to put out the fire were KGB officers who were looking for access to, you know, to the U.S. Embassy and hopefully the particularly sensitive spaces in it. Things like that do happen. Um, and you just, in this case, they'll have to operate on the assumption that they did. And and, and and try and clean it up now. I would add in one more wrinkle to the question. Granted, we don't know, we're speculating right now. I would bet against any foreign intelligence officer have been, uh, being in the crowd, pure and simple, because the cost benefit of having your second secretary uh, found in the speaker's office, uh, either caught on camera, God forbid, arrested, shot by Capitol Police, et cetera, et cetera. That is just too high a risk for the potential benefit. In foreign intelligence assets, who might very well, as Mark says, uh, you know, photograph documents, bring in bugs, et cetera. It's possible. I don't know one way or another, but that's what we really, I think, should more look at than offices, foreign officers. Yeah, I think that makes good sense, actually. And, and what else would uh, people in foreign embassies have been up to yesterday? What other types of activities would have been going on? Yeah, well, I think in this case, back to, you know, what I watched from, from Washington, 
uh, about you know the responses in 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 uh, the U.S. embassy and our and our friendly embassies in Moscow in 1991 and 1993, and you know this certainly happens all over the all over the world from time to time. It's just that those are the ones that are prominent in my memory. Um, so you would have had a lot of I, I would I would suspect uh, that the you know probably the a lot of folks from the Russian embassy and probably the Chinese embassy and maybe some others uh, would have had a lot of their personnel out on the streets, um, probably both no kidding diplomats and probably also some intelligence personnel whether they were for their from their foreign intelligence service per se or maybe their you know military attaches um one just getting a sense of like what's going on on the streets getting you know vox pop talking to protesters etc um two uh i would fully expect that you know um some foreign military attaches uh, did things like for instance go and just have a look at the dc armory where the national guard is staging just to see what's going on um, maybe even find some junior person to sit at the gate all the time, <laughs> you know, send a message back if, you know, trucks uh, start rolling out, possibly, um, you know, maybe again, sort of drive by the gates of some other military facilities in D.C., uh, you know, have a look at, uh, you know, what's uh, lights on in the Pentagon after hours, just those sorts of things, like picking up bits and pieces of what's going on around the city. Um, and that would have been, you know, um, uh, you know, uh, an effort probably of a broad swath of people from from the U.S. Embassy. It's kind of a you know, sort of standard sort of thing um, that happens when there are incidents along these lines in a foreign capital, right? Um, uh, embassies of countries that care go out and look and see what's going on. Rather than duplicate what Mark just said, with which I completely agree, I'll just say I was in the position in a foreign, in a U.S. embassy overseas when there was a coup. What? And what I did in conjunction with everything that Mark describes is write cables back to the State Department, back to Washington, addressing what are the key questions. What, first of all, what is happening this moment? What are the step-by-step? -step, what are the rumors that we're hearing? What might happen next? Secondly, what does this mean for the big picture? If I were, say, a Soviet political officer of any flavor sitting in the Soviet embassy in Washington yesterday, I would have been writing assessments, what does this mean for the Trump administration's final days? What does this mean for incoming President Biden? What does this mean for the potential of the U.S. Congress being able to accomplish anything? What does this mean for U.S. stability in the longer run? What new openings do we now see available for whether you're talking propaganda manipulation, uh, using overseas, using in the United States? And then finally, just pure and simple, how did this happen? What does it mean? What? I mean, that's that's really fascinating that you had that experience, Diana. Uh, where and when was that? Well, I guess it's good enough. Uh, it's far enough in history. It's documented. Uh, I did spend some time as a State Department political officer in Pakistan through the revolving doors of Benazir Bhutto and Nawaz Sharif and uh, also was involved in some of the uh analysis and force uh processing involving uh general zia's death just trying to figure out what that meant for the future of pakistan well the next thing that i think would be interesting to know would be what kind of information could have been compromised yesterday i don't expect either of you to be au fait with current you know information security protocols but at a more general level um you know what, what what's kind of going on there mark um well uh so 
as far as we know publicly, um, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, both of you, but I have not heard about any of the, the SCIFs, any of the you know secure facilities where classified work is supposed to be done uh, being compromised in the Capitol. So hopefully there were no per se classified documents or classified you know hard drives or anything sitting around to be photographed or stolen or whatever. Um, that said, um, you know, it, 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 it's it, beyond that. It's hard to say. I guess what I would say is that um, the even if you don't get classified documents, that particularly, not exclusively, but particularly from the point of view of sort of political intelligence, um, that there's, you know, there potentially can be great benefit in, you know, uh, rifling through the speaker's office or rifling through the office of, you know, chairman, chairman and chairwomen of, of, of prominent committees. And that sort of thing, and also in bugging uh, those places, right? Um, even though a conversation might be completely unclassified, um, just super hypothetically, it'd be really interesting to, to Russia to know that you know uh, Speaker Pelosi was uh, was was on the phone with somebody else talking about you know uh, you know a move to invoke the Twenty Fifth Amendment, right? Nothing classified there, but boy, Russia would want to know about that. Right. Uh, mm -hmm. So if there were documents or if bugs could be planted that would get them that kind of information, you know, could be a gold mine there. The other thing real briefly, I would say um, is and I suspect that, you know, Diana and I could both probably tell stories about this, is that policymakers don't always follow the rules about you know, storage of classified documents, about not talking about classified thing, not things on open line telephones, blah, 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 blah. Um, so, you know, that opens up certain, you know, vulnerabilities. And, and, and again, you know, if I were the Russians, I'd love to have had an hour or so in the, in the, the, the Intel Committee uh, Chairman's uh, Office um, and the Armed Services and the Foreign Affairs Committee, uh, you know, uh, uh, office space, um, just to look for those mistakes that get made or the times when, you know, the, the member of Congress thinks they'll well just bend the rules this one time because it'll be really a pain in the neck to walk to the secure spaces to get on the secure telephone. So let's just talk about this one issue real quickly. All those sorts of issues, so those sorts of things that, that can be exploited. Exactly. Uh, I would say one huge intelligence gap we have for this discussion is in fact how many congressional and Senate staffers do the equivalent of we all use one, two, three, ABC as our password for all our different applications. It sh there should not have been classified information accessible. It's entirely likely that there may have been. Remember, we just had a vote a little while ago overturning a veto on the defense appropriations bill that defense appropriations bill by definition involved not just quite a bit of classified information that belonged in a skiff but quite a bit of uh details and negotiations etc that as mark said would be extremely interesting a second factor worth remembering is a good chunk of every congressperson and every senator's job is constituent relations. They have staffers whose full-time job is processing people's VA benefits, social security problems, uh, other issues that involve personally identified information and sometimes quite personal information on U.S. citizens, including social security numbers, telephone numbers, addresses, et cetera. So yes, that could be interesting to intelligence services, say a very, very angry U.S. veteran, but that's also marvelous material for criminal use too. So I would not be surprised if we see some criminal activity regarding this information in addition to whatever intelligence service work might occur. So, so one photograph that many people have seen is the photograph uh, that seems to be in Nancy Pelosi's office where there's a 
computer that is signed on with the federal security alert in the bottom right hand side. What kind of information could you glean from that? Well, I mean, I think, um, you know, the same kinds of things that Diana was uh, was just talking about there. Um, also, you know, um, beyond just immediately getting information, I'd be concerned about the possibility of implanting, you know, malware uh, on the computer. Um, they could give you, you know, enduring access even after all of this is uh, is over. Uh, so those would be the two things that would immediately come to come to my mind. Um, I mean, I think at the end of the day, it doesn't matter much for the kinds of, you know, um, information and concerns that Diana was talking about, whether you get it in soft copy or hard copy there, you know, both are available in abundance in many of these offices, I'm sure. Uh, but I would be worried about um, the potential for, for malware enabling more persistent access to some of those machines. Um, I'm also amused and, 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 and alarmed that there aren't better protocols for like, you know, securing computers on your way outside the office. I never in any meaningful sense uh, served overseas, uh, but Diane, I would imagine where you were at U.S. Embassy abroad, there must have been procedures for if something bad happens, here's what you do with the, with the computers and with the classified documents and all that, uh, if there's an emergency. Of course, and I don't expect members of Congress or senators to maintain self-discipline on burn time. It's a totally different environment, but that said- Usually, I usually was, a totally different environment. Yes, <laughs> usually, <laughs> but I was beyond appalled to see that screen simply because let's face it, it, I understand you were evacuating for your life, allegedly. It's not that hard just to hit two, three keys to bring the screen down. That it wasn't done, that says a lot to me about the casualness which they, with which they may very well have handled other things, other documentation too. Which I think gets to a broader point that so often the vulnerability in, you know, in computer systems, in crypto systems, et cetera, is not a technical vulnerability, it's a human vulnerability, right? And that's okay. what, that's what you know the technical collection folks of of, of every technical collection agency um uh in the world bank on uh, first not exclusively but first is you know find the person who doesn't think the security rules apply to them or too boneheaded to to apply them um and exploit that and if that doesn't work then let's start doing the mathematics to start breaking cyber systems or looking for zero day exploits or all that but Let's go the easy route of human human uh, uh, you know failure first. We'll be right back after this. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. I, th I, I think uh, it was quite interesting to me because before I started at the Spy Museum... I was at the Library of Congress, so just across the street from the Capitol. And if we, in the Kluge Centre, if we left our desks for more than two minutes, you had to come back and get your authenticator app out and log on. And, you know, this is just scholars researching really obscure things, by and large. Um, but the security seemed to be more tight at the Library of Congress than in the Houses of Congress, which is quite interesting. <laughs> yeah, it's distressing. <laughs> and just just to finish up on the on the offices, um, I, I had a look online and I couldn't find any information. I know about Speaker Pelosi's office, but I, I one of the first things that I thought was, what about the chairman of the the House and the Senate Permanent Select Committees on Intelligence? Where, was anybody in their offices, and, and if they were, um, what material could they have found? 
Yeah, I haven't heard anything about that. Um, but but obviously, um, you know, uh, well, on the one hand, uh, it would seem to me that that would be those would be places where particularly sexy information from the point of view of foreign intelligence services might be located. Um, intelligence services always love to collect on other intelligence services. Um, on the other hand, I would also hope that the people who worked in those offices might be slightly more security aware than you know your average bear working on Capitol Hill. So I, I don't I don't quite know how that would cut, but I haven't heard any positive information either that any of those offices were, or for that matter, were not breached. I would agree. In fact, I did some searching, and uh, my results showed absolutely nothing one way or another on those offices. What I will say to echo and build on what Mark said is, remember, most people in Nancy Pelosi's office, in the general member of Congress office, senator's office, will not have security clearances. They'll have sat through a couple security briefings, but in general, it will only be maybe one or two staffers who have a security clearance. When you move into people who are on SSCI, on HIPSI, especially if you're talking the chair's office, I hope that the higher percentage of people with top secret code word accesses and the accompanying training and briefings, et cetera, would lead to greater information security. Countervailing that is the reality that they have that many more issues that, well, they may go to the SCIF to read the classified material, but what notes do they jot to themselves to keep things clear in their memory when they go back uh, to their office to work on the bill and how secure are those notes? Yeah, uh, what, what, whether it's talking around something, quote unquote, on the telephone or taking cryptic notes, um, speaking both from the Intel side and also, and probably both of you have had analogous experiences in your work as you know, historians, it doesn't work. Like if you get access to those notes or if you're listening in out of that conversation, at least eight times out of 10, you can figure out what they're talking about. If you know your target, you can figure out what they're talking about. Uh, so, yeah. And there's also the issue, quite frankly, we don't know they got into the offices. We don't know uh, if they got into the offices, how much time they had. But don't forget one thing that I would find extremely interesting is just from the notes and the papers, even if they're entirely unclassified, who is working on which issues? Who inside that office is most interesting to me, either to spot assess recruit or simply to get an access agent next to, to make friends with. How much of an Aladdin's cave would that be? Say, say they got in uh, Adam Schiff's uh, office, um, what kind of material would the, the chair of the uh, House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence have? How much of a goldmine would that be, Mark? Uh, well, uh, you know, potentially. Uh, you know, the chairman of, uh, of the Intel committees have access to, um, you know, more or less anything they want, right? I mean, the, the, those folks are on the very short list of people that even with the most sensitive things the intelligence community does, they tend to get notified. And they're not always like, you know, in the instant everything is happening or whatever, um, but um, their access is extraordinary. Um, less so for the just rank and file members of the Intel committees, but still pretty remarkable. Um, but, but the, but the chairman, um, and, um, and I'm guessing I never worked on the Hill, but I assume the vice chairman pretty comparably are almost, almost as much, um, have access to, I mean, you know, the keys to the kingdom, uh, basically. Agreed. 
and that includes not only what COVID action, what COVID operations are taking place around the world, what intelligence is being collected, including on uh, Russian targets, sources and methods, how collection is taking place, and also issues to do with budget, including if you had, for example, the spreadsheet, and I'm not saying this was available, but say, for example, you had the spreadsheet of the budget request for next year from the National Security Agency. What that budget request would tell you is what new systems are they looking to bring online? Where are they putting their greatest emphasis? What programs or places in the world are they increasing the focus? How many new linguists are they hiring and what would the languages be? Documents that you or I would look at and say, oh, it's just accounting, it's not that interesting, could really, really, really be useful for a foreign organization. The big question that we also don't have here though, did they get in? A lot of this, we may be spinning up just in speculation. Secondly, if they got in, who is it who got in? How efficient are they in this day and age of cell phones? Back during the Cold War, we used to smuggle micro cameras to our Russian assets to take photographs of documents. They don't have to do this anymore. Everybody has their iPhone. I'm sorry, it was just real briefly. I mean, I think this gets to a, a broader point that um, is completely missed, I think, in, in popular fiction about uh, you know the intelligence world, is that just because something is um, classified doesn't mean it's interesting. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, uh, <laughs> Diana and I, you know, have both worked with, you know, huge piles of enormously boring information. You can do interesting things with, but valuable stuff is often just mind-numbingly boring. But doesn't mean it's not Until you put it together. Yeah. Let's turn to America's allies. What what would uh, British um, intelligence officers or, or diplomats have been making of this? What would... Uh, Germans, French, uh, America's allies around the world. What what kind of activities would have been going on with them yesterday on an intelligence front? That's a good question. Um, I guess I would speculate, and it's not something I've thought much about, to be honest with you, but I would speculate uh, that for them, this is less of a... Yesterday was less significant in an intelligence sense and more significant in a political and diplomatic sense. What does this mean for the future of U.S.-U.K. relations or U.S.-Germany relations or whatever? Uh, What does this mean for the stability of the United States and its endurance or lack thereof as, you know, the the big pillar of the the global order and uh, and of NATO and and that sort of thing? Um, I don't think that they'd be looking at this in nearly the same kind of um, target-oriented sense, if you will, that we're hypothesizing that, say, the Russians and the Chinese and others might be looking at. Um, and, well, I suppose it's possible that, the, you know, they some of their folks from the embassy might have been out on the streets, but it wouldn't have been sort of the urgent, like, this is a big opportunity we need to get, you know, we need to really be covering the city kind of thing uh, that it might possibly be for the Russians or, or the Chinese. So I think it'd be a very different, yesterday probably played very differently in the British and Canadian and German embassies than it did in the Russian and the Chinese ones would be my guess. But I don't know, Diana, if you have different thoughts on that. I would say that they would be intensely collecting to address a different set of questions, as Mark says, from, say, Russia or China. The type of questions they would be collecting against and writing about would be, A, of course, what does this mean for U.S. stability and a future? Two, though, what does this mean for us? What does this mean for our ability to 
work with the United States to uh, see our national interests in maintaining the alliance with the United States. What does this do if indeed intelligence was taken from congressional offices? What would this mean for our ability to trust the United States with our own classified and secret material? What does this mean for our economic interests? What does this mean for our national security interests if we need to call upon the United States? And that would be a huge issue, I would think, for countries, for example, in the Baltics or mm -hmm. Central Europe. So they would be looking at this still through the eyes of self-interest, every country does, but it would be a sad day for them too, no question. Well, one, other, one other thought that occurs to me here is that um, friendly countries, like the ones we've just been talking about, have certain advantages, and I don't really call the collection advantages because that's, I think that's not the right frame, but but they have people on their embassy who can call up their opposite number in the State Department and just chat mm -hmm. with them about what's going on. They have people in their embassies who can call up their opposite numbers at the FBI and at the CIA and at the Pentagon and at the White House for that matter and say, hey, what's going on? And actually expect to receive mm -hmm. an honest, maybe not complete, but at least an honest answer in a way that, you know, people from the Russian or Chinese embassies can't. Um, so they've got, and again, I, I don't want to call this intelligence collection in a very technical sense. It might be, but it's more about, you know, just diplomacy and the day-to-day, -day, yes. you know, relationship that our government and their governments have, um, that allows that openness because it's a, you know, a friendly relationship, uh, not a hostile one. I would agree. And I would also say that one thing that I would assume for example, British diplomats or intelligence officers would have spent yesterday looking for would be levers for them to help, for them to support U.S. stability. Would, for example, a statement by the prime minister encouraging peace and all sides to work with each other make a difference and be well taken, etc. And in fact, along exactly those lines, uh, we saw a long list of statements saying more or less mm -hmm. that uh, from um, numerous NATO allies and other friendly Western European countries, at least. I didn't see any from our Asian allies, but that may have simply been a question of time zones or me not looking in the right place. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, we saw many of those sorts of statements and it's entirely possible that those were, um, you know, had a backstory to them uh, as Diana suggests. I'm sure they do, and part of my own uh, reaction seeing those is I know how often we make those precise statements about small, poor, unstable countries elsewhere on the planet, and it's a little bit embarrassing to be the subject of those hopes and thoughts and prayers type cables and statements. What does the aftermath look like? What's like the post-mortem? What, what is the IC up to today? What kinds of activities will be going on? Uh, which agencies will be busier than others? Um, just unpack that for us a little bit, please. Um, well, um, so the FBI uh, has already uh, put out a call for, you know, photographs, videos, uh, you know, other information uh, relating to people who may have committed crimes uh, at the Capitol uh, yesterday. Um, and uh, so that's a collection measure in and, in and of itself. And, you know, a lot of analysis is, is going to be done there. Who are these people? Uh, have we actually accurately identified them? Uh, you know, what actually do we think they did? Those sorts of things these days. Sort of the FBI special agents who, you know, are the, no kidding, the law enforcement types are, are very much supported by intelligence analysts, and I'm sure they're all super busy. And, um, and I suspect that at least the preliminary moves to start doing post-mortems, post-morta, I don't know, I never studied Latin, mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> on, you know, sort of getting back to where we started this conversation on what went wrong and where 
Um, I'm sure at least the preliminary discussions about how are we going to organize that and hey everybody you know don't don't throw away any data and all that sort of stuff is is probably those discussions are probably already starting though I think that process is going to be a very lengthy one um, to actually figure out you know who said what to whom and 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 where might mistakes have been made or or opportunities have been missed. I would agree the FBI and DHS are by far the busiest today, uh, including one would certainly hope there are some analytical shops in DHS that are taking a brand new look at how they've been handling different right-wing militias and movements. I would not be at all surprised if all our embassies and stations around the world are not reporting back reactions from their local governments. One thing that is also worth just mentioning is one perspective that Mark and I come to this discussion from is when we worked in the IC, for the most part, political parties, political ideologies did not matter. I worked for five presidents and they were both parties. So what? Our colleagues in the IC and we took great pride in the fact that we didn't even know each other's political parties. We didn't care. It was the mission and the national interest. I speculate, and this is pure speculation and concern. I only started seeing political influences in Obama's second term when I was working with people who actually were active with the Tea Party. And that shocked me that they would talk politics and an American election in an NCTC office. I am afraid that may become less and less rare and yesterday was such a crystallizing moment. I even got a letter from the president of my university today to all people in the university community, essentially saying, we are focusing on our community and our mission. I take for granted that there are going to be a lot of all hands memos coming out in every IC agency and office along that line today. I always try to stay neutral, but I think it would be pretty fair to say that this presidency has been an outlier in terms of the intelligence community. Would, would you agree? Yeah, I mean, I think we're seeing uh, strains in what is slightly imperfectly called civil intelligence relations in the during the Trump administration that are, um, I think, more severe than we've ever seen. Um, many of them have historical precedents, but they've been, um, I think, um, turned up to 10 uh, in, in many cases during the Trump administration. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I, I think it's been, it's been unusual in, in that regard. One thing that I teach my students now is the president is under no obligation whatsoever to take on board intelligence analysis. The president is elected by the people of the United States. Intelligence officers are bureaucrats. That said, as Mark said, I mean, if you look at Nixon's denunciations, uh, some of Kissinger's uh, work to shut out the CIA. There is a history of tensions that are higher at points, but no, never like this. And the thing is, whether the president is required to listen to the IC 
That's one question, whether the president actively works to undermine the IC, that's something totally different and that is unhealthy and dangerous. Just final couple of questions now. I think we've done quite a good job of covering some interesting terrain. Imagine uh, Avril Haines has to withdraw for personal reasons. Uh, President-elect Biden gives you a phone call. Um, I want you to be the new director of national intelligence. From each of my heads, I want I want one thing that you want accomplished in the first 100 days. Uh, what would you What would you go for? Uh, Diana, you got a good off the... Well, my first answer is not only no, but hell no, am I taking that job? But uh, I'm not sure I have a good answer beyond that. I have to think for a minute. Diana, do you have any okay. thoughts there? Yes. What I want more than anything is to get a grip on what type of politicization has taken place in the past, I won't even say four years, I'll say 20 years, especially, of course, the past four. Where is the politicization? Where is the political warping? And how do we get the IC back to where it is in apolitical, not non-political, apolitical, national resource that can best support national security, regardless of who is sitting in the White House. I think that makes good sense, actually. And 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 now that I've heard Diana enunciate it, I think I think I would endorse that and that would be on my immediate list as well. And I think about uh, uh, Director of Central Intelligence, as the title one was then, uh, Robert Gates, um, who gave a very famous uh, speech in the bubble, the auditorium at the CIA, shortly after he became CIA director, about politicization. That was sort of a different flavor of politicization that he was talking about. But he had he had once been nominated to be DCI and rejected, and nominated a second time later, and confirmed, but after a really bloody uh, confirmation process that hinged on politicization of CIA analysis of the Soviet Union, and in particular his alleged malfeasance in that connection. And he he uh, he he held this all hands at CIA, in which he said, you know, um, uh, we're not going to do this, right? We're gonna we're gonna call them as we see them. I'm gonna put you know particular safeguards in in place to ensure that if you think your product is being politicized, that you have, you know, you can you have recourse. You can bring this to people's attention, and you know, perhaps a a new and updated for the current set of issues, a new and updated version of that uh, would be would be very helpful. Well put. And. And, and final, uh, it's not really a question, it's more just a prompt. Are there any other intelligence espionage implications of what transpired yesterday that you think it would be important to discuss or for SpyCast listeners to think about, Mark? Uh, well, go, go ahead, Diana. Sorry, I... <laughs> One of our greatest appeals has always been with all our flaws we're the good guys we stand for something good we stand for democracy we stand with all our flaws for a multi-ethnic multi-racial melting pot where people have a chance we stand for at least attempting to do the right thing. And frankly, yes, we stand for a united strong power. Those are all attractants, especially during the Cold War and the Soviet era. That is a reason why a lot of our greatest Soviet assets volunteered to work for us not just because we could pay them, but because they wanted better for our, for their country, and they believed working with us would end up being a good thing for the future of their country. My question is, can we still do that anymore? Are we still trustworthy? Are we still 
something to aspire to. I still believe we are, but how does it look overseas to somebody who might be amenable to recruitment? I can't say that anymore. I hope so, but I don't know. I, I completely agree with that. I guess I'd also say, and Diana touched on aspects of this earlier, but I think it's probably worthwhile for the intelligence community to have a hard look at um, its emphases. Uh, are we paying enough attention to domestic issues, domestic intelligence issues? Are they the right kinds of domestic intelligence issues that we're paying attention to? Do the agencies which have the authority to pursue those kinds of questions, which is primarily the intelligence components of the Department of Homeland Security and the FBI, do they have the resources, the training, the analytic and culture? Uh, are they, you know, are they getting the right people? All those sorts of things. Um, those DHS is quite new in the intel realm, and FBI um, since 9/11, you know, still sort of trying to fully get on its feet as an agency that does intelligence sort of soup to nuts, including the analytic part of this, are the things we can do to help them along and make them sort of stronger members of the intelligence community. Uh, you know, we're obviously going to have to continue to keep our ball on, our, our eye on the ball of, you know, enormous numbers of, of foreign intelligence issues. Um, but are we paying enough attention and in the right way uh, and setting resources against those on the domestic side is something that I think maybe, you know, some kind of zero-based review might be might be useful. Yes, with the one factor that anytime we talk about domestic uh, surveillance, et cetera, for a public audience, we also need to add in the caveat that I know was implicit in what you said, Mark, that we are going to continue to recognize U.S. citizens, residents, First Amendment rights, uh, Fourth Amendment rights, et cetera, that there must be more domestic counterterrorist work, but that will be conducted and must be conducted constitutionally. Oh, ab absolutely, yeah. Domestic domestic issues are hard uh, uh, in a way that foreign intelligence issues uh, uh, are not for for precisely that reason. Um, you know, you don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. We could have. We could have perfect domestic security if we were willing to institute a 21st century version of the Stasi, um, and that's not where anybody wants to go. Uh, so finding a way that is, you know, constitutionally sound and also just politically sound in terms of of what the American public uh, can accept uh, and can rightfully expect from its intelligence community is is at least half <laughs> of the problem with regard to domestic intelligence. No question. Agree. The International Spy Museum is a full 501c3 non-profit. If you want to donate to the museum, or if you're local and would like to volunteer at the museum, please visit our website at spymuseum.org for more information. Hey listeners, we're always looking for ways to improve the N2K CyberWire network and maintain the intelligence-driven news experience that keeps you in the know on the latest developments in cybersecurity. We've launched our 2024 audience survey and would love for you to take a few minutes to share your feedback. And hey, there's even a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card if you complete the survey. Visit cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com survey and share your feedback now.